welcome to the Ponderings from the Perch. It's Priscilla McKinney, the Little Bird Mama here at Little Bird Marketing. And with me today is one of my oldie goldie friends. We talk all the time on LinkedIn and keep up to date with what's going on. Um, Hunter, I see you all the time on webinars and presenting, and then I talk to you in chat. So we get to finally actually do it on the podcast. So I have with me today, Hunter Thurman from Alpha Diver. Welcome to Ponderings from the Perch. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. And maybe we'll uh, see each other face to face this summer as the conferences pick back up in real life. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I listen, I will, I will buy you two beers. How about? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sold. (laughs) Well, that was easy. That was too easy. Hunter. You should have really held out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I accept your opening offer. I think that just shows you how desperate we all are to get back in person. Like two beers. That sounds good. Yes. <laughs> like I, could, I could have given you like a two scotch. I mean, you like, yeah. really could have worked me. I didn't even specify the origin of the beer. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, I'm going to tell you if you don't know Hunter, because I do think in some ways, Alpha Diver is a little bit of a best kept secret in MR, but I really can't wait till that is not the case. And you get to tell your story in so many more places. But Hunter Thurman is the founder and he is the president of Alpha Diver. They are very unique insights consultancy of sorts. Really, they're leveraging like that side of neuroscience to measure, explain, and predict consumer behavior, but they're bringing that um, together in an innovative way. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But he is the author also of Brand Be Nimble. And so, you know, here on Ponderings from the Perch, I like to have authors on. And at the end, Hunter, we're also going to beg you for tips and tricks about would you ever write a book again? And if you did, <laughs> what would you do differently? So we're going to ask you to, to give it up there for uh, us a little bit. But in 2011, he started Alpha Diver with this vision that he had really of applying behavioral science and understanding the human behavior. And I think that's really, you know, at the core of what we're all trying to do out in insights. But, you know, it wasn't a lot of groups that were bringing that neuroscience with psychology together with data science, you know, and really kind of bringing it all together. And, you know, we saw some of that happening over in academia. And when I had Siggy Hale from your company on the Ponderings from the Perch several years ago, it really was a transition where your group really was saying, how do we get out of academia where some of this really meaty stuff is? And how do we actually give these goods to consumer insights and really start making better brand decisions with them. And so right now you are working with leading brands and the Wall Street analyst community who is looking to measure, get more foresight, be better at predicting and those kinds of things. So that's the kind of the tenor of the conversation we're going to have today. So Hunter, I just want to say before we get started, a big thank you to you because I love this community that we've all built. And you have been one of those people who has advocated for me when I was not in a room. And I appreciate you bringing me to the table with a group that you had, inviting me to speak somewhere else. And I think that's what this community is all about. Just huge thank you. Oh, well, that, that means a lot. And it's, uh, it's well-deserved and, and right back at you. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed um, our partnership over the years. Yeah, it's just like such great um, camaraderie and always just looking out and saying, you know, maybe I can't speak on that, but someone else could bring to it, or maybe we could do this together, or she has one piece of the puzzle and I have another. And I think that's also shows the way that you think at Alpha Diver is that you don't feel like there's just one answer to what's going on and how businesses need to move forward. It's just really multifaceted. So I want to start there. So your background really comes from traditional stuff. And then you discovered the neuroscience field, 
So what's this blend? Like, tell us a little bit about Hunter Thurman and, and, and what you learned over on academia and what you've been able to bring over. What is that special melange that, you know, that you lead Alpha Diver with? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there's been so much on, you know, you mentioned LinkedIn and, and there's been so much just sort of in the, you know, in the, in the media or in the, you know, on the pages of the internet about people feeling stuck. Um, and that's been a big theme over the past couple of years, but I think my kind of stuck uh, phase was, was in, you know, 20, 2009, 2010, I'd been in the insights and strategy industry for, for 10 or 11 years you know, and, and I think, you know, by, by most people's counts, had a successful career going, you know, was in when it was in a leadership role, you know, working with great clients, doing doing all the things that we all talk about. But I had this sort of dissatisfaction that I really, I mean, put plainly, I really couldn't explain how we were doing it or how I was doing it, you know, and it kind of reminded me of, you know, anytime a new project or a new challenge would come along, kind of flipping over the chart pad sheet and kind of going, okay, be creative. <laughs> Here we go. It's opening night. Um, and that was very dissatisfying. Um, and so around that time, I really reached out as many people have in the past couple of years, you know, networking and, and creating perspective or providing new perspective. Um, met a person who introduced me to Siggy, um, who, who, uh, as you know, is T. Siggy Hale, PhD, uh, famed neuroscientist at that time running a lab at UCLA, um, but who we know as Siggy. And, and, and she, the, this um, mutual friend kind of said, I think you guys would, would hit it off. You should, you know, you should talk to each other. Um, and it was kind of one of those moments where, you know, I, I, I started speaking with him and he said, okay, so, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, we try to help big companies figure out what people need, you know, and how to serve them and what tensions they have in their life and so on. He goes, oh, really? That's like, a, that's like a thing. And I'm like, what do you do? You know, like I, I figured, you know, hook people up to machines and measure their brainwaves and things. And, you know, he basically said, we, we understand the causations of human behavior in order to, you know, diagnose and treat all sorts of different things, you know, solve problems. And it was kind of, and, you know, it, it, it became this very um, sort of symbiotic conversation. At one point I said, you know, at, at the core of what we're trying to do is figure out why people do things. And he kind of laughed and said, well, we know why people do things. And I was kind of like, cool, well, you tell me more. You know? <laughs> Wait a minute, hold on. Chocolate and peanut butter, here we are. <laughs> Let's do I this. There was an, I was thinking of the scene from Step Brothers when they, oh, okay. when they realized that they're like totally, <laughs> but I, I, yours is perhaps more eloquent. Um, but yeah, it was kind of chocolate and peanut butter. He's like, well, we know why people do things. Um, you know, my problem is, you know, I have to write all these grants and run all these you know, very intensive lab experiments and defend, you know, anything I create, I have to defend, you know, I spend more time writing grants and a grant requests or grant proposals and defending my findings than I do actually finding things, you know? And so he became very interested that, you know, we were out, you know, every day applying this and, 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 um, and measuring, you know, why people do what they do. And, um, you know, the other piece that he mentioned to me is, you know, I said, I kind of was expressing to him my, my, what I'm trying to solve for is that we go out and we collect a lot of data and we try to figure out why people do things. And he said, oh, you're working model free. And I kind of, again, kind of said, okay, go on. He said, in academia, everything's model based. And the difference is model free, you know, as I think many researchers, people, you know, in, in our industry can relate to, you go out and look and look and look, 
you know, and, and, and collect and collect and collect. And there's some sort of, I think, misconceptions that are still present today that, you know, as long as we collect all the data, surely the answer will be somewhere in there. So what it results in is, you know, you go out kind of model free, collect all these data, come back to the ranch, you know, whether qualitative or quantitative, and try to find the model, try to find the signal, find the pattern. In model-based work, you take an established model that's known, embedded, and you go out and collect data, sort of mapping it back to the model. You know what you're looking for. You know, and Sigi always likens it to the difference between wandering in the woods and following a map. You can still discover some cool things. Um, the latter is much, much more um, productive than, than the former. So that was kind of I, I my might, I, I might show a little bit of my, you know, my lack of knowledge here, but is that along the lines of what we would refer to as grounded research, like where we're not coming into it with a hypothesis, it's like hypothesis free as well? Like, how is that connected? I think that's true. Yes. I mean, what I, you know, I think the difference between any good research should have a hypothesis, right? I mean, that's the scientific method. I think the, the big difference is model-based it's not a hypo, you know, you don't know what the answer is, but you're not hypothesizing what you think the answer is. In model based, you're saying, look, there are these durable, predictable reasons that people behave in certain ways. Let's figure out which of them is explanatory of our context, as the scientists call it, or of our situation, our brand, our category, our shopping channel. Um, so yes, it's, it, it, I would say it's not at all antithetical to hypothesis driven. It's like a stronger hypothesis, but instead of a hypothesis of what the answer is, it's a means by which to go and make sure you know what you're looking for in order to get to the true, accurate, objective answer. Right. Or if you're a Douglas Adams fan, then we know the answer is 42, right? (laughs) Do you remember this in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? They have this massive computer in the future and they've programmed it and it's been calculating and calculating and calculating. And then it spits out the answer to the life, the universe and everything. And the answer is 42. But then the thing is nobody thought to write down exactly how they phrased the question. So... So they don't know what it means, but it's, it's calculated now. So I just would like to leave everybody with 42. (laughs) You know what? It's not a bad analogy for some of the things that I'm seeing go on in like the AI um, kind of space and not to, not to just, you know, not to disparage AI at all, but we did an experiment years back where we took big corporation, like a big CPG and really took like all their data, like all their decks, all their documents, all their research findings and put it through this big AI engine. And I I remember it really well that the scientists that was leading it came in and said, it worked. Like we found these answers and and it was like, you know, mom, love, baby. It's like it had found, it's like the computer had figured out what was in all this and sort of the like the big takeaway was like, yeah, but it's I mean, that's all the stuff that we already knew. It was really <laughs> impressive that the computer boiled it all up, but it was sort of a good example of model free. It's like the answer was in there and it was like, mm-hmm. you know, the themes and the sentiments that were common across these decks, not the answer that everybody was looking for and that hoped that like, you know, artificial intelligence would provide. Right. So what does it all mean? So let me ask you that, you know, some companies are really, really far down what they believe to be the right path for leveraging some of the things that people are measuring with neuroscience about Mm -hmm. non-conscious behaviors. And then some people haven't even 
started thinking about this in terms of their, you know, uh, uh, customer sentiment or, or, you know, insights or how they're actually getting a a read on what is happening or the kinds of uh, shifts, uh, paradigm shifts that are really happening out in the consumer's world, really in real time. So I guess my question to you as the president of Alpha Diver who has had this experience and the seen, you know, people on the the spectrum here, Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to professionals who haven't started? And what would you say to someone who has, you know, dipped their toe in and and whatnot? So kind of like, how do you see that? How do you see that progression? Yeah, I mean, you know, so so I, I, and as you kind of said, and I, I appreciate the sort of credit that, you know, we were pretty early in the in the, the B side, behavioral science, you know, behavioral economics, whatever space, really bringing it to bear, you know, in a, in a sort of day-to-day activational way. Um, you know, and, and I think back then, some of the, some of the misadventures perhaps that, that this, this subset of the industry had were around um, sort of shiny objects, a lot of like eye tracking, a lot of, um, like fMRI measuring brain waves. I remember a lot of things that actually were in like pretty, you know, the 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 even the popular press, not to mention like the MRX kind of press, um, about like, you know, people's brain waves lighting up when they ate things and things like that. So there was a lot of, I mean, we've messed around with a lot. We messed, we've messed around a lot with like bio, biomarkers and 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 you know, measuring skin conductance and a lot of like um device driven type things. And there's there's a lot of good science to that. The companies, you know, that are, or, or the teams, the brands um, that are being really successful with it are using it not as an, like an and, not as sort of a shiny, you know, a little bit of icing on the cake or a little bit of embellishment. They're using it really foundationally, you know, so they're saying, okay, you know, we've done a lot of segmentation, for example, we always kind of, you know, come back that either we find the same segments that all our competitors had, or we find this really cool attitudinal segment, but we don't know how to go reach them, you know, we can't point them out in real life, you know, so, so they've, they've come and that, that you, you'd be surprised. I mean, everybody assumes that the bigger and more money an organization spends, the, the, the further they are down the path. There's no, from what I found, there's no sort of correlation um, in terms of like marketing, you know, insights, organization um, efficiency or sophistication with their engagement with more non-conscious measures. But the ones that are being really successful with it are, are, are recognizing that it is really foundational. It's not something to be sort of bolted on. It's something that can explain the ground truth. You know, so a lot of times we'll come in and retroactively our findings, you know, I'll hear people say things like, oh, we always wondered why we saw this versus that. This Now I explain it. Now, now this explains it. Um, and, and, and likewise, using it as a very foundational piece such that then your subsequent research is model based, you know, you know what you're looking for. That's where it's been really successful. And so I think that, you know, those that are kind of on the early adoption lead and have stuck with it have found that those that are late, you know, in, in sort of adopting or trying it still think it's a bunch of, you know, eye tracking and Google Glasses. I saw your funny post the other day on LinkedIn with the, the next iteration of Google Glasses, like, you like a that? camera taped to a <laughs> pair of horn room glasses. There is some perception that that's still kind of what that is, that it's kind of like, you know, off, off, off in the stratosphere, off in the clouds. And I guess my counsel is it's not. It's really foundational. It's actually very objective and, and pretty simple when you get down to it because it, it's based on these core human truths. 
Well, let me take one step further on that same question. Let's kind of stay right in that same vein. Let's let's go vertical with that because I do know you work a lot with um, you know, the Wall Street analyst community. So I am curious what that experience is. In fact, you've had me come in and speak to capital market groups and things like that. So yeah. so tell me about how you know, the way that you all think and the way that you create, you know, projects foundationally is to a major advantage and why you work so much, you know, in that community. Yeah, that that's, you know, it, it didn't really occur to me till, till this conversation, but that, you know, so that 10 years ago or so, 11 or so, I met, you know, Siggy and really kind of immersed in that community. In the last few years, I've had a similar sort of you know, cathartic discovery of, of the Wall Street analysts analyst community, some of whom you've met, as you mentioned, and really what I discovered um, at really at the, um, with the help of my, my great friend and advisor, Bob Goodwin, he really kind of discovered that world is that there is this whole, whole world of, of analysts whose job it is to, to, of course, I mean, this isn't a big surprise that there's, you know, analysts that look at stock price and company performance and report on it and things. But what was a real discovery to me is the degree to which at least some of them um, are open and interested in more progressive ways of understanding human behavior and the degree to which, you know, in, in, in advising the C-suite or, or in, in assessing company performance aren't just interested in the hardcore P&L, you know, earnings, all the words that I get out of my, above my pay grade really quickly. Um, that's not the only things that many of them are looking at. They're actually very interested in, in you know, um, sociological shifts human behavior, um, because, you know, they've discovered that even when companies spend millions and millions of dollars on research, there's still surprises and there's still questions. Um, so that's been a really, it's been a really enjoyable kind of interaction for me is to, to report some of these data alongside those, those, those that analyst community who then, you know, shares it out um, and, and is a great, a great, um, has a great audience in the C-suite. You know, a lot of senior leaders really look to them for guidance and um, and counsel on on what they're looking at, um, and that's been a really a really powerful ecosystem for us. Yeah, and I think to pull from something, I think you would agree. You know, if you think back to Malcolm Gladwell's uh, book Blink, you know that there is more than just data or being able to you know, put out in a linear and logical fashion, the conclusion you've come to, but I do see that that community, although you might originally just think that this community is only about the cold, hard numbers, that there is something else in the people who really shine in that type of a community really are people who have almost that sixth sense. Now it may be completely based on, you know, it's not intuition, like, you know, uh, you know, grandmother's advice, it is really based in things that they know, but maybe they can't articulate, but it is the, uh, the sum total of all their experience, knowing that there is a certain something, there is something else, this human aspect that is driving, you know, the difference between, you know, this product or that product or this company or that company or this type of owner and this type of owner to being a winner. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, absolutely, you know, gut feeling instinct, that really is, you know, your, your hard drive, you know, your subconscious mind, netting and averaging, you know, pulling all of yourself and going, here's what we think, um, you know, the right path is. And you're exactly right. Even in something as, as, as black and white as stock analyst, you know, do, do we think the stock is overvalued, undervalued, whatever, um, that type of, of, of insight 
um, and, and perspective is still valuable. Now, it's not like they're, you know, um, going on gut instinct. There's a lot of analysis that goes with it, but I've been surprised, pleasantly surprised by the degree to which that, that world embraces um, things that aren't just retroactive, you know, past looking um, performance data. And a lot of that is because, you know, and in talking with these people, um, you know, they, there is no real predictive measure. I mean, still that is like the unicorn. Is there a way that we can understand consumer, let's just call it behavior, in a way that gives us, you know, more predictive measures? And, and we're still kind of stuck in the world of consumer confidence, you know, stated or, 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 you know, basically measuring what people think they think. How likely are you to do this? Which we know. Oh Lord, please let's let's all quit self-reporting, okay? Patently flawed, exactly. <laughs> By the and, way, Hunter, I went and worked out four times this week. I just want to self-report that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, I eat really healthy. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, boy, what is this? My my annual physical. It's like how's your exercise? Oh, good, good, it's fine, great. How much do you drink? I don't drink. <laughs> Water? Oh, funny. I'm sorry. Do uh, they still make that? They still make that water thing? Oh. No, but so, you know, and, and so some uh, in particular, um, Nick Modi, who, who you, you've talked to, I remember years ago said, look, I mean, the more you can create these trajectories that give us indications, you know, and, and signal, you know, what's to come in these trajectories, that's still incredibly valuable and incredibly scarce. And, and frankly, that's been, you know, that relationships like that have helped push us along and, and, and helped us really refine the way we're looking at this. Okay. Well, I'm going to backtrack one second because you mentioned that you liked my very funny Google glasses post the other day on LinkedIn. And I do try and master my world of LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, but PS, uh, you mentioned Bob Goodwin. That's another person you need to put a good in, word in for me with, because that guy really does master his LinkedIn world. And he is also somebody who can advocate for people when they're not in the room. So now you're on my podcast. So now I'm asking you a favor. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> let's move yeah. on. Yeah. Hey, I, I, I love introducing my cool friends and my smart friends. So that's a well, no-brainer. I know him, but, um, but definitely, you know, and I think of over the years of the different people I've introduced you to, and you've introduced me to, and I just think this is really, this is where it happens, the intersection of this and, and the quality of conversations that we can have too, to help people think differently about their particular science, about their particular way of framing things. It's yeah. so important. This collaboration is, is so key. And I think that's why you know, you and I've become friends and been able to think about, you know, really is a CEO of a marketing, a digital marketing company have something to offer here over on a, you know, a B science approach to consumer insights. Yes, we do. Because I think about things differently than you do. And when we put that together, you know, we have a lot more chocolate peanut butter moments and that's what we need to have. right. Right. Yeah, I mean, Bob and I had a discussion the other day along these lines, you know, with, with so much focus over recent years on, on you know, on corporate diversity. And, and I think a lot of times, Siggy refers, you know, as long as I've known him, has talked about neural diversity. You know, diversity isn't just the, the, the street view of like a diverse team. It's a neurally diverse team, too. And I think that's the ultimate intention of diversity is different perspectives. But, you know, there's so much, you know, again, talking with somebody who I never thought would have been, you know, of, of value to this industry, a neuroscientist running a lab at UCLA, it was like, wow. And if someone said, hey, you know, and when Bob said, hey, you should talk to these Wall Street analysts, I was like, no, maybe you don't understand our business, you know, and it's like, it's been amazing how much those very diverse viewpoints um, have, you know, been really foundational in, in, in how I've conducted my career. 
Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I have one, you know, kind of bigger question still about your work. And then I do want to force you to give up a little bit of the backstory of what was really hard about writing your book, what was really easy and would you do it again? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cause my listeners, a lot of them have a book in them. And so this is a favor. I like to make sure I pull that curtain back all the time and, and show yeah. them what's really going on. Now my book will be out, I think maybe around o- October. Let, let's hope one can yeah. hope, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's such a journey. And I think sharing our stories with people, people helps them say, I could write my book. I could get it out there. And I want people to hear that, but so I want to talk about something. I want to circle back to something you said earlier. It's almost like you were talking about consumer insights and how people traditionally have seen that as like from a rear view mirror, really. I think you said the word hindsight, right? And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know if it's good or bad. It is just the truth. A lot of consumer insights for many years has been about tracking what already happened. And we know that, and there's some value in knowing what's happened, but you know, probably the biggest buzzword in the last five years has been this customer, um, centricity, you know, you know, uh, a world everybody's been talking about is like, how do I really understand the consumer's needs? How do I put their desires at the very forefront of my marketing effort? Obviously Mm -hmm. for us at Little Bird Marketing, there's a reason why our entire systems are built around solid persona development, right? It's not about you. (laughs) The moment you make it about you as your company, it's over, you know, it's about, it's about that consumer, right? And it kind of seems like maybe neuroscience might be antithetical to that. Like, you know, it was like kind of like a cold, hard science versus warm, caring, fuzzy empathy, you know? So tell me a little bit about that and, 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 you know, or prove to me that they're not antithetical. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, (laughs) now I'm going to be empathetic to you. Put on this paper robe and stand barefoot (laughs) till I come back in the room. Like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's, you know, because we're looking at things, I always say, and, and people around here get sick of me saying, you know, I can't stand subjectivity. You know, subjectivity interjects a lot of a lot of trouble. Um, I, I value objectivity, um, and and so that doesn't sound very empathetic. Um, you know, and exactly as you said, warm and customer centric. But you know, the fact of the matter is, when you look at human behavior, and I think even when you know, you can read sort of. You, you mentioned you know a few good books out there. I mean. You know, Kahneman, Gladwell, these these people that really popularize some of these behavioral science um, principles, you know, we don't really know why we do what we do. We're pretty bad at explaining, as one of our psychologists said, we're very good at explaining what happened. We're very bad at explaining why it happened. And he said that in the context of, I was talking about mobile research. And at that, you know, years ago, it was like, oh, you know, if you have your, if you use a phone and ask them right in the moment why they did it they'll be even more honest. And that was a very popular concept for, for a time. And, you know, a lot of organizations still use mobile. His um, is, is this guy, Art Markman, who's at University of Texas. And he, he immediately said, no, that's the worst time to ask him. That's when all the emotions are in play. That's when all the, you know, the, the, the filtering and the biases are happening. You're better off asking somebody, you know, two weeks later to ask them in the moment to what happened. And then two weeks later, or a week later, ask them to reflect on it and ask them why it happened. They still won't be able to explain it wholly, but they'll be a lot better off. So point being that, you know, if you understand the cognitive processes and we all kind of know so much of our behavior happens subconsciously and we just don't have access to it. So to me, when you say, you know, being empathetic to someone that can feel like, oh, you should talk to them and interact with them and interview them. And it should be much more qualitative and and interpersonal. The fact is, you know, you're really not helping them discover anything more about themselves. So to me, you know, the ultimate empathy from a 
you know, a marketing insights perspective is help people understand themselves in ways that they're incapable of, un- of, of doing, you know, of recognizing in their own behavior. You know, they know something, there's a tension in their life. They know they're dissatisfied with something. Don't, don't try to force them to explain why. Use these methodologies, use these principles, these models, you know, this knowledge that's been studied for decades in academia and find solutions for them. You know, and to me, that's what's truly empathetic. They don't need to feel warm and fuzzy during the research. I mean, when they go through our our measures, um, you know, it, it feels interesting and unique. It probably doesn't feel terribly warm and exciting for them. But at the end of the day, we've diagnosed things about them um, and understood them in ways, um, you know, that are, are really additive, uh, you know, and, and, and give our, our, our partners ways to serve them in much more customer-centric ways. And to me, that that is a a different definition, but I think maybe a purer definition of what, you know, empathy really looks like in, in our context. You know, that's interesting as you were talking of, of an analogy or like a, just a, an example came to me to mind, and mm-hmm. I don't know if it works for you, but take it if you will, but uh-huh. it's kind of like how there's such a big desire among consumers now to understand themselves more, whether mm-hmm. if you look at like really emerging apps and disruptor brands, but if I think just, let's just look just at wearables, yeah. you know, whether it's a ring or whether it's a watch or yeah. whether it's a heart monitor or whether it's a, you know, just whatever it is, there's so much now that is, I'm going to give you this sleep information about yourself. It is yeah. yes through this hard, cold technology, put this on your arm. How That's not soft and fuzzy, right. you know, but what it is delivering to me, it is being truly empathetic. Oh, did you know that workout you did yesterday was like half as effective as the one four days ago? You were sick today. Why did you work out? Like, you know, or, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just saying kind of trying to extrapolate from that. But I do think that is one way to be able to see how technology itself can be empathetic and how giving people just the actual cold, hard facts is something that is in the end empathetic. It's helping them understand what yeah. happened and be able to process you know, information about themselves. And I think even as consumers, sometimes we don't understand why we buy. Wouldn't yeah. we like to know? You know, how I got, you know, based on your floor plan or your, you know, shelf positioning or the color of your package, how I ended up through, you know, your neuroscientific based prompts doing what you wanted me to do. And so I I do think people do want this information. They want to understand themselves better, just as much as we want to understand, you know, the other humans from the other side, the consumers. Absolutely. I mean, we, we talk about that a lot and that we, we sort of have resisted the, you know, the temptation to delve into the, you know, into the sort of consumer self-assessment kind of side of, of what this has to offer, because there is a lot, you know, and there's a lot of investment, a lot going on in this space, but there are these principles from science. One that always is really interesting to me is called chronobiology. It's not a household name, but it really explains like how we feel all the time. And it's, not terribly difficult. It's what a lot of these devices and things can measure. And, you know, an example, a prime example for me is we've incorporated into our culture, sort of a self-recognition of each of our chronobiology. So I know from my team members 
like don't schedule a meeting with with her at this time if the nature of the meeting is this you know if it's a really deep thinking and we want to really be smart together she's got different chronobiology and we kind of recognize that like her smart windows are different than my smart windows and it's actually really powerful you know and, and, and like with Siggy you know I know that if I'm going to take his time between about 8 and 11 it better really be worth it because if it's some meeting about you know something that can wait till the afternoon it's a better place to do it. So there's tons there. And then, you know, the way where, where I think it really impacts on our work is, you know, it helps provide experiences. It helps our, you know, our clients, our partners provide experiences for consumers that just feel better. So that when you get to the website and you're looking for peer reviews, et cetera, I don't get a bunch of comparative checkbox, you know, side-by-side -side things. If I'm, you know, if I'm trying to shop with my senses and find things that just feel good to me. It doesn't have a lot of verbal claims as the number one dermatologist recommended blank. You know, things that basically, without me being able to explain why moment to moment as I'm going through and buying a bunch of, you know, food and personal care products and things, it's easier for me. It uses the data that my brain, you know, is naturally using. And it just, you know, sort of qualitatively makes my life better. That's where it comes through sort of in the macro. That's kind of the other side of that coin from what you're talking about of, of, of that self-discovery and, um, and self-awareness that certainly is a, I mean, we're just going to, you know, you hear about the metaverse and all that kind of stuff. That is certainly a place where it's going to continue to evolve um, and, and provide us with a lot more insight into our own our own lives, our own behavior. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, you, you obviously, if you want to have more conversations like this, you need to follow Hunter on LinkedIn. He's, he's, he's getting out there. I see a lot of good conversations happening, Hunter. So it's they, Hunter. with your help. I'm starting to figure out how it all works, <laughs> how to do it. What does yeah. this button do? <laughs> um, so oh my, I mean, my first real post, you would have thought I was giving the state of the union address. I mean, it was like, I know the pressure, but it's real. Yeah. I mean, the struggle's real. So yeah. <laughs> I know it feels like the whole world's going to happen. I'm like, you know, you could just press enter. It'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> It'll work. So you can check him out. Hunter Thurman. It's H-U-N-T-E-R Thurman. T-H-U-R-M-A-N. Find him on LinkedIn. You can also find Alpha Diver at Alpha, A-L-P-H-A hyphen diver D-I-V-E-R.com. But now for my last question here, Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So Give me one, one tip. Like if you have a book in you, like what's something you would say to somebody who is, you know, has a book in them is unsure what the next step is, or, you know, what was the best part about, you know, your experience, just some tidbit you'd offer about the authorship, you know, and that journey. Yeah. The, the best thing that the, the thing that kind of got it off the, the starting blocks for me was having somebody that was like, helped kind of interview me and helped me just kind of talk through, you know, I hired somebody that was like a professional editor to kind of help interview me and kind of say, okay, what would you, you know, what would your outline look like? What would this chapter be about? And, and that's kind of a good way to figure out that like, okay, actually I do have some things to say. It's hard to sit down kind of like my analogy at the top of this call and flip over, you know, in the olden days, you know, pull up the typewriter, pull up a blank word document and go, okay, I'm going to start my book. You know, you've got to start with an outline. You've got to start, you know, all the things that you can Google and read about, start with the framework, but having somebody to just ask you, you know, and, and, and even like, you know, so I hired a um, kind of an editorial partner, but even just somebody that's a, you know, a peer or a friend or a confidant doesn't even have to be the exact same person, you know, ask somebody to sort of interview you about a given topic that you think is a chapter in your book, you'll find that you start, there's a lot more in there 
that you're scared to start typing because it won't come out as like these beautiful, eloquent prose, but you do have, you know, you do have the substance there. So that was really helpful. And then I think that kind of the flip side of that, and then my biggest discovery of what was really hard about it was when I did get things down on the page, it's like, that's as good as they were going to be. And I don't know if you experienced this Priscilla, but I would have these moments where I'm like, in my mind, this was going to be, you know, Pulitzer prize winning. Like I was going to write this incredible thing. Once I wrote it, and it's not that I was saying it was bad. It's just like, that's, as, that's how it's going to be. And it's like coming out of your sort of, you know, this sort of unstructured mental concept into, you know, a written body of work, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. There was this real insecurity of like, okay, that's it. You know, um, did you experience that? I mean, was that kind of how it was for you? Yeah, in a lot of ways, because um, you'll laugh at this, but I, I also hired an editorial uh, team. You won't laugh at that. What you'll laugh at is the next part is that I just finished all of my actual interviews of each chapter. And so that's all done. And and mm-hmm. so we're getting that first, you know, full draft done. But I mm-hmm. bought myself a hat to celebrate. It says, doing my best. <laughs> and, you know, it, it is that thing of saying, you know, this is, this is what, this is my knowledge. This is what I know. I believe that it is a game changer for a lot of people, but this is what it is. And this, it's not anymore. (laughs) And I am, I'm not going to worry about it. So I, I very quickly silenced, you know, that, that monster. I know other people struggle with that a lot more, but I bring myself back to, you know, the fact that I've been writing blogs for, you know, a good, better part of like the last two decades. Right. And I, and if you think about just the amount of blogs I've written for our team, then the amount of podcasts I've done, and then the amount of blogs I've ghost written within this industry. How many yeah. articles have you read that actually were written by me uh-huh. at some point? You know, so I've done I've done a lot of writing. Um, so you would think I would have that kind of down, but I remember very early in my career in my blog writing, I wrote this one about what's the difference between marketing and advertising. And somebody suggested that title to me. So I wrote it and I'm like, oh, this is the dumbest blog ever. I handed it to my executive director at the time. I didn't even say anything to her. She brought it back. She goes, oh my gosh, this blog was amazing. I just, I learned so much. And I looked at her like, really? <laughs> and, and I'm not joking. That blog would go on to outperform a million other things that I thought were so clever. And it just reminds me that what is very solid knowledge to you and very understood by you to, it seems almost so primary. It can be something that changes someone else's life, their perspective and causes that paradigm shift. And as one of my business coaches always said to me, I said, Priscilla, it just doesn't mean anything to you until it means something to you. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I tried, I tried to live in that while I was writing my book and say, this is just who I am. This is what I know. This is, it really, once I was able to get it down and understand this as a school of thought and as an an entire like worldview, then I'm like, well, this is what I'm living by. But I really, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that is a big struggle that people have to say, oh, well, it needs to be some amazing, you know, prolific prose, you know, (laughs) or whatever. And it's just like, no, I got some chat. Here's my outline. These are the chapters. And then I'm going to be done. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people probably realize that like all the content in a book is not just all out of your own brain. It's not like you have to think of everything. I mean, one of my biggest struggles is like, what about the little antidotes? Like what about the little or anecdotes, not antidotes, anecdotes that, you know, demonstrate um, the principles and the bring it to life. And I was like, well, I've got some, but, you know, talking with other people, um, you know, I'm not suggesting that all books are like, you know, plagiarized and take from other things. 
it, you know, talk with other people. It's okay to like, you know, source other material and like look to other people for perspective and examples and things. And I think that's where you don't have to be, you know, 2 a.m. with a lone candle <laughs> typing away, thinking of all this on your own. It can yeah. be a little more collaborative. I think that was a surprise for me. Yeah, that's funny. I'll, I'll end it by saying this is that that's a good thing. You just gave me that approval because um, one of my chapters is basically taken from a conversation from with me and my 13 year old. So thanks Sawyer for making this work for me, but it yeah. is where you, when you see these principles and then you see them play out in different worlds, it's important to pull those stories from, you know, different places. And, you know, my, my book's about how collaboration is the new competition. And I think we, if that's not true, then we shouldn't see it in a lot of different places, but if it's true, then let's see it across the board. And so he brought up a very good point that I think a, a big reason about why people don't collaborate. And I'm like, I have to include that because people will resonate with that. Like they went through this when they were in seventh grade, this is exactly the problem with seventh grade. Believe me, there's a lot of them, but it, it, it doesn't get any different. You know, when we get in the corporate world, this is still the kind of ridiculous collaboration that is forced on us. So I think that's super, you know, super amazing, but let, you know, do you, as far as your book is concerned, do you feel like you have another one in you? Well, it's funny that you asked that. So, so the name is brand be nimble. And this guy I worked with said, well, the second one's got to be brand be quick. I was like, well, that is a good name. That would be a good sequel. Brand be nimble, brand be quick. <laughs> was, so, was this guy a marketer? Cause he's onto something. No, he was actually a developer, like a, like a code developer. And, he, and it, it hadn't occurred to me, but he's like, you've got to write one just so you can call it that. And so it's, it's kind of funny. Cause I have thought about you know, that and like, what, what would I talk more about? And in Bramby Nimble, I, you know, I, I do talk about, you know, behavioral science and these principles, obviously a subsequent book would be even more, uh, you know, squarely in that space. And, you know, there is something around quickness, uh, you know, about these ground truths. I mean, when somebody sees something or encounters a brand or a piece of content or whatever, there's very quick, you know, everybody knows it as system one thinking, um, so there may be something there. I mean, we certainly, we certainly do kind of banter around and, and these, these principles and what, what we're seeing in our, our, our data um, from these, you know, core drivers and barriers of human behavior. Uh, you know, look, they are help, they're helpful to me in my daily life, kind of your points about Apple watches and things. They're certainly helpful to marketers. So yeah, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I'd know what was coming this time and I wouldn't be. I wouldn't feel so, you know, so bad about some parts that I maybe would be a little less optimistic about other parts. So, yeah, well, if you are listening to what Hunter had to say about, you know, really wanting that uh, key information that's really going to give you that competitive edge or what's, what is it that I can do to, to turn around and kind of like how that title is brand be nimble. Like how are these startups really using information and, and, and being flexible and, and pivoting quickly? And, and, you know, how can, even if you're at a big brand, how can you actually maintain, you know, the flexibility uh, in your brand and the way you do things so that you can actually really, you know, take a leap ahead of your competitor. Yeah. So if that sounds remotely interesting to you, then go Go check out his book. Of course, it's on Amazon, Brand Be Nimble. But Hunter, thank you so much for taking your time and coming on Ponderings from the Perch. This has been a romp, but you know, we'll 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 catch each other for uh the beer, I promise, and also out on LinkedIn. It was two, two beers. I mean it's oh, the okay. <laughs> Don't start back now. <laughs> He's gonna be, do you have anything imported back there? <laughs> yes. I'll take two of your most expensive beers, please. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, that's going to be, um, that, can we turn that, your, uh, your byline on LinkedIn to that? Yeah, exactly. I'll take two I'll of your most expensive. Most ex- who's paying and I'll have the most expensive one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it was certainly enjoyable having you on and I really appreciate you taking the time. You too. Thanks for having me. I, I always enjoy hanging out with you. Well, from all of the peeps here at Little Bird Marketing, have a great day and happy marketing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.